All right, Acts 17, two through five. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. All right, thank you very much. All right. Hey, uh... We didn't, we didn't check my mic. Is it, is it working? I see a sound guy running. That means something. Yeah. <laughs> we had the police bought our little in-ear channel, so we had a new system, and we're working out the kinks here. So there we go. All right. Here we are. Um, <clears throat> okay, so yeah, that is the same passage that we did uh, last week, and we're doing it again this week because... Because I'm basically, I, I wanted you to understand, like we're getting like into deep sort of like theological narrative concepts here, and I wanted you to get a, sort of a, a handle on how the Apostle Paul views the story of God. Um, by the way, I want to reiterate that. We are reading a church called Tove. Here's a bookmark. On the back, it's got a reading plan. In the back there, they're in the lobby. Grab one and get yourself a book and get reading. Um, I think most people are going to be starting... This week, maybe next week, it's okay if you're a week behind, you can catch right up. We made it nice and slow. We took, it take two, I'll give you two months to read a book. It's not even a long book, right? So if I've talked to you and you've told me like, I'm not a reader. Well, you are now. Get a, you need a bookmark. You haven't been a reader because you know a bookmark. Um, okay, so I've wanted to teach this for a while. This is sort of the concepts of, of how a first century Pharisee would have told the story of Jesus to Jews and to sort of God-fearing Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles are the Gentiles who have come close to Judaism, and some of them have even um, uh, been circumcised and take part in the laws, but they, they, they aren't counted really in um, because they're Gentiles. And so how would Paul talk to them? Because normally today all we get is, how do you talk to modern Americans about, about Jesus? And we talk about him as king, and we've talked a lot about that. Um, and so this is what we're doing today. And it really, one of the big questions that Paul sets out to answer when he meets with these people, like when you look at these passages and it says that he went into the synagogue and he taught them the things of Jesus, the story of Jesus, it says that he, I think, I think the text said he, he, he took the time to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So like what's he doing when he's doing this? How do you, how do you do that? How does a first century Jewish mind wrap around this stuff. So, um, and after he does that, after he tells them the gospel, it actually says this. It says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women, but other Jews were jealous. So a big part of the question that Paul sets out to answer has to do with specifically the faithfulness of God, and it has to do with, I mean, what Ruth just talked about, God has been so faithful to us. Yes, that is Paul's big argument through the book of Romans, through the book of Galatians, that and a lot of times through the book of Acts, that God is faithful to, to his people, that God is faithful to us, to humanity, that God doesn't give up, that God keeps seeking and chasing us down. And so 
What you see in every writing of Paul is, is that Gentile inclusion. When Paul goes to the Gentiles and he teaches them about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and he brings them into the church and he opens up sort of Israel to usher in, to, to bring, to usher in this new age of, of God's people, of Jew and Gentile coming together as the people of God, it makes the Jewish people jealous. And there's a lot of questions. They're like, what, what causes? What are they jealous about? What are they mad about? Are they mad because he's getting attention? Is, is, and that tends to be how modern people read it. You see the apostles getting chased down and persecuted by the, um, by the, uh, by the religious elites. And you kind of think, well, it's because they're mad that he's taking their audience. That's not what this is about. Um, when you talk about jealousy, oftentimes you sort of make it synonymous with envy. And here's the difference between these two ideas in the text. Envy refers to what someone else has. It means to want what someone else has. That's what it means to be envious of someone. <coughs> Jealousy, uh-oh, Rona. Jealous means to protect the status that one has. If you are jealous of what someone else had uh, in the text, like the way it's talking about here, the, the Jews were jealous of these, of these Gentiles that were coming in. Um, they're jealous specifically for their own status and preserving that status as their own, as God's people. And so if I were to like sort of use these in sentences, um, I envy the life that you live and the things that you have. I envy the house, the job, the car, all the, I, can, I can envy all that kind of stuff, but I can't be jealous of that in the, in the sort of mind of the writers of the text. That's specifically envy. I'm jealous for my status and honor and position, and I will defend them. If someone else comes in and they are a high honor st- uh, person or, or they're a low status person and they are being sat at the same table as you, you suddenly become what's called jealous in the ancient world. Jealousy in that mindset is they don't deserve to sit here with me. You're actually bringing my honor down when you include them in what I'm doing, when you lump them in with me. And you might not think this is a thing today, but it is. When you talk about different political movements, um, people tend to say, well, I'm, they distance themselves from different things. I'm definitely not that. If you lump me in with that, it brings down my status. And so I'm jealous for my status, and I want everyone to... I, I've, been, I've spent years building up a, a persona of how I want people to view me. And so if you see me with this other person, um, that brings down my status in the eyes of all these people. So I'm jealous for my status, so I cannot talk to this person. We don't interact on Twitter or Facebook. We're not friends. We don't go... Even though you might secretly like what they're doing, you would never let that out. That's the same difference, right? Like you're being jealous for your status, okay? So um, why then did the inclusion of Gentiles, God-fearing Greeks, uh, and prominent women in the church stoke jealousy in the hearts of the Jewish people? Because in their mind, God has made Gentiles his new people. And if God, like like Paul is saying, like, God is now using the Gentiles. He's bringing them in. And in the mind of the ancient Jewish people, if you're bringing Gentiles in, we're God's people. We have always been God's people. And I don't know about you, but I don't see the world being made whole again yet. And you made a covenant with us that you are going to make the world right through us. And if you're bringing them in, that, that means that like God is abandoning us, that our status is different, our, our, our place in the heart of God, in the mind of God, and in, in the eyes of the world is somehow less than now because you're bringing them in. How is it that you can bring them in? If you bring them in, that means you have been unfaithful to us. And so they would literally accuse God, through, like by talking to Paul, of being unfaithful. And I want to explain this, okay? We're going to get to a bunch of Bible passages in just a second. 
but I want to explain the covenants of the Jewish people and how they understood it. We're doing a lot of a lot of big theological ideas today, and I'm going to sort of bring them down to earth so you can like live them out. I don't believe in like mentally ascending to theology. I believe in a lived theology. Like what you believe, you live it out. And so you can look at how someone is living, and you can tell a lot of their theology by that. Um, okay, so a covenant in the ancient world. A covenant is a contract. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. Each person is required to remain faithful to that covenant. Even if one person falls away, um, the other person will likely still complete that covenant that they have made because their honor depended on it in the ancient world. Um, if you did some of the covenants, if you did a little bit of it and not all of it, um, you are considered unrighteous, you are unjust, you are unfaithful. These three ideas work together. Righteousness is a declaration that you declare over somebody who has fulfilled a covenant. Okay? Uh, if I promise something to you and I fulfill it, you could take that to Jewish law court and you could accuse me of not fulfilling it and they would look at the evidence and they would say, no, he's righteous. Righteous is not, in the eyes of the Jewish people, it's different than in the eyes of American evangelicals. Righteousness is not about morality. Righteousness for the Jewish people is not about sinning or lusting. Righteousness is about faithfulness to God and to your covenant. Um, and so if you don't complete it, you're unfaithful and you're unrighteous. Um, and you're unjust. If, however, you complete it, you are declared righteous, you are declared just. So, we have texts in Romans 9 that say things like this. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? The reason Paul is asking so many questions in Romans chapter 9 is because these are questions he was getting. He's sitting in the city of Corinth, and he's writing this letter to the, to the Christians in Rome, and these are all the questions that he's received from the church in Corinth. And he assumes all the churches are having the same questions because they all have the same audience. And so he writes them and he says, there's like 15 questions there. Is God unjust? Is God unfaithful? Is God unrighteous? And we hear that and we're like, why would anyone ask if God's unrighteous? If God's unrighteous, he's not God, right? Because he's just like us. Like, how could God be unrighteous? And it doesn't make sense to us, but for the Jewish people, it made sense. If God didn't fulfill his, his covenant, his promise, God is unrighteous. He's unfaithful. This is why the Jewish people are becoming jealous. Gentiles are being brought in. And they think God has been unfaithful to them. And this is a problem. And so I'm taking a couple weeks here to help you understand the mind of all the parties here as Paul is teaching them about God. Last week we talked about this, and some of it is buried behind the, behind the drums. Oh, well. Um, about, about sort of what I called the nesting doll sort of narrative. And uh, if you didn't catch that, I'm not going to do it again today. Go back and watch uh, last week's sermon. Today we're doing something different. And today... The sermon settles, uh, sort of centers around the question about what makes people jealous, the Jewish people jealous. The question is simple. Has God really been faithful to Israel? This is an important question that must be asked because the entire narrative centers on this, this question, has God been faithful? And what they're asking is, did God ever really use Israel to bring salvation? Did God use the people of Israel to bring salvation or did he do something else? Most Christians today would look at it and say, well, the Jewish people failed. Um, and like, so this is left over from a 500 years of, of Reformed theology. The Jewish people have failed, and so God did something different. Um, that is a terrible way to read the text. And that actually makes God unjust and a liar. That actually makes God unrighteous. It's honestly, um, it can move into territory of anti-Semitism as well and racism. 
It can enter into a territory of they're bad, God abandoned them, God chose us, we're good. What they were doing has ended and our thing has started. That is not what Paul is doing. That is not what Jesus was doing. Jesus was actually Jewish. I don't know if you understand this. He was an actual rabbi. Um, we like to think he was just a free-thinking philosopher walking around. He was a Jewish man teaching Jewish disciples. He had Jewish apostles. Paul is a Pharisee. Paul's highly educated in, 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 in the ways of Judaism, the first century, second temple Judaism. This is what he's living out. Under no circumstances would any of them have ever said God abandoned his people and did something different. That would make God somebody not worthy of following. So, um, if salvation has not come to the world through Israel, the question is, has God been faithful to his covenant? And Christian theology that ignores and replaces Israel with Christianity, it, it honestly kind of makes God a liar. It makes him unlawful, I mean, unfaithful and unrighteous. So here's how Paul answers it. Um, it starts off in Romans um, chapter, chapter 9, where we just were a second ago. And it starts off with a little line like this. It says, is, it is not as though God's word had failed. So there it is. No. God's word um, has not failed. The promise of God, the works, the action of God has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So he throws in this sort of a, a puzzle, a riddle, to think about. Like, riddle me this. Not everyone who has... Uh, who, I'm sorry, let me put it the way he did. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So he's sort of like, he's asking questions about like, what makes you one of God's people? Is it by birth? And then in the very next verse, he adds this. He says, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Is it only those who are the descendants of Abraham who can be called God's people? Or is there more required than that? Are you born into this thing? Or is there a covenant? Is there faithfulness? Is there something else that needs to happen? And the reason he's asking these questions is because he has an answer for them. And he wants them to ponder these questions. These, these questions would have been asked in the Roman churches by Phoebe, who Paul gave the letter of Romans to. And she would have gone to these, there's about 250 Christians in the first century in the city of Rome. We tend to think it's this massive church. It wasn't. Maybe 300 people. More likely less than 200 so Phoebe is going house to house, about 20 or 30 people gathered there as churches, and she is asking them all these questions and having them think about it, and then she is teaching them theology because Phoebe was a bit of a pastor. Um, now, the cycle of Israel comes into play here. I talked about this about two years ago. We were going through the book of Matthew for three long years, um, the, good, the good old days. And there's this thing, there's this way that the Jewish people understand their own history. And all of this is going to stack off of each other, okay? So it starts with Israel and Israel's king. The king is the representation of Israel, and Israel is the representation of its king. When you look at one, you should know what the people are like. When you look at the people, you should know what the king is like. This is how the ancient world worked, okay? And so as you move through time here, the kings always fell into idolatry because they're human, and they always led people astray. God told them if you have a human king, he's going to lead you astray. Lo and behold, every king they have leads them at least a little bit astray. And then we go a little farther. Um, there's this prophetic warning. The, the prophet steps in and says, hey, stop it. Something bad's going to happen. Um, then the wrath of God, which, which takes the form of the removal of God's protection, comes. And the people are taken into exile several times. They end up enslaved, um, living in a land they, they, they were not born into. Other people moved into their land. Their temple destroyed. They can't practice their religion. They can't do any of that. This is about the time where they start writing books of the Bible that they had always been passed on orally because they're like, we have to keep this for our kids. 
And so, at some point, the people enter into a time of repentance and they realize it was our idolatry that sent us into exile. And so there's repentance and then God sends a rescuer of some type and they are restored and there's this return and they establish the kingdom again with their new king and then it starts all over and it just goes round and round and round and round. Um, But there's something else happening at the same time. If you look at passages, um, especially in the book of Isaiah and Paul, I put uh, Romans 9 down here because Paul quotes Isaiah. Um, Isaiah comes out and says, in case you didn't notice, every time we go through this cycle, again and again, every time we go through this cycle, there's less and less of you that remain faithful to God. More and more of you stay in the land you've been taken in bondage in, you begin to enjoy it, you begin to like it. And so we have um, passages like Isaiah 10, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God, though your people be like the sands of the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Um, Isaiah 11, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit, uh, fruit from the old root. So like not the whole tree, the tree's gone, but some will grow out of that. Um, Romans 9, Paul calls it out and he says, though a number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. He quotes Isaiah 10. Um, This is what they cling to. God has been faithful because God has been preserving a remnant of people. Every time we go through this cycle, a whole bunch of people fall away, but God always preserves some for himself to continue on his work and to keep it moving forward because God is faithful and God will not abandon his world and God will always have a people that he keeps for himself to do this work to bless the rest of the world. This is how the cycle of Israel works. These remnants are quote-unquote true Israel that Paul is talking about. This is the true Israel. Paul says, not everyone born of Abraham is Israel. It's true. He considers those people who were left behind, who didn't remain faithful and come back, he says they fell away. This is Israel now. They do it again, they fell away. This is Israel now. It requires some amount of faithfulness to the covenants. God's people must respond to the covenants that they are in. And so, that's why we have passages like this, like I put up earlier. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So those who return, those who remain, uh, those who return are the ones who have been faithful. So the remnant is those who return by faith. That is who the remnant is that you're talking about. And you might be hearing this and you'd be like, so what? What does this have to do with anything? It actually has a lot to do with how Paul understands Jesus himself. And if you understand this, you can understand how Paul is going to teach the Jewish people and convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. When, when Luke says, Paul spent time with them proving that Jesus was the Messiah, what's he doing? He's doing this. This is what he's doing. Um, so let's, this is where I want to teach you the second narrative that I want you to understand. It's called the chiastic narrative. Do you know what a chi is? It's an X, right? Like this modern day what we call an X. It is uh, it's a, it's, it's a Greek word, um, looks like an X today, and it, for the early Christians, the X was the, the it was symbolized the name of Christ. Um, that's why when you see at Christmas time, when people say, Merry Xmas, and other people are like, hey, don't take Christ out of Christmas. They're not. They're literally just using the ancient Christian symbol of Christ in Christmas. They're not doing anything controversial. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to leave that there. And keep going. Um, okay, so this remnant, like I said... This is how it works. Israel starts off huge, great in number, like the sands of the sea, according to Isaiah. And as the cycle moves forward, the faithful remnant gets fewer and fewer and fewer. There is this narrowing of God's people. 
becoming laser-focused, very, very small, smaller and smaller and smaller, of the people who are actually faithful to God's covenant and who actually trust and believe, no matter what they've been through, they believe that God is still saving the world through them, that God will still bless their enemies and they want to love their enemies and they want to make the world, set it, the whole thing to rights again. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until there is only one faithful person. Do you know who that faithful person is? It's Jesus. The whole thing narrows down until we get to Jesus. Jesus is then the full self-embodiment of Israel. That's why Matthew writes his book. Matthew believes this too. That's why Matthew writes his book so that Jesus is living out the story of Israel in his own life. There's a flight from Egypt. There's a murdering of unborn children just like uh, in, in the history of, of Israel's people in the Exodus. There is, there's 40 days in the desert to match their 40 years. There's all the temptations. There is um, passing through the waters of the Jordan as in baptism and entering into the city anew again. All, like everything that he went through, even on the cross, bearing their exile and singing their exile song to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Israel's life and existence, their entire story summed up in the life of Jesus. The reason Matthew writes it like this is to say this. Everything Israel's ever wanted to be, Jesus is. He has succeeded where we have failed. He was tempted in every way as we are. Modern Americans read that as like, he's talking about me. Well, I'm really being tempted, but Jesus has been through every temptation I have. I understand, I'm proud of you for using the tax, and I, and I like what you're doing. That's not what their author's doing now, just so you know. The author's talking about Israel. What Jesus went through is everything that Israel went through, except he was without sin, without idolatry. And so what happens after that? Does it, Israel remain Jesus? No. From there, it branches out. You have apostles. And you have this expanding of God's people. And what does it say at the end of the ministry of Jesus, he looks at his people and he says, go ye, J- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There was this narrowing until it was just Jesus. And then there is a widening and now everyone is welcome to be brought in. That's why you see Paul using language like this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, we all belong now. No longer is there an outside group and an inside group. Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's another passage where um, Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The way we tend to use these passages of Paul is we use these for non-Christians. And we tell them, they're like, how do I become a Christian? And, and we quote this. Declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And we say this to non-Christians. But what Paul is doing Paul is not talking to outsiders to bring in. Paul is talking to insiders who don't want outsiders in. And so when Paul says this, when Paul says, believe on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He says, everyone who believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's not talking to people who need to be saved. He's talking to the Jewish people. In fact, nobody in the book of Romans is in need of salvation as we understand it. They're they're a church. They're all Christians. They're not unsaved people. Their struggle is with jealousy. They have a thing, they have a system, and they don't want these outsiders coming in and ruining it and disrupting them. They don't belong. They're not one of us. We have done the work. We are theologically minded. We understand God. We're God's people. We have followed God for thousands of years. 
and you're bringing these other people in. And Paul looks at them and he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe, it's not about being born into God's people. It's not about keeping the covenant anymore. It's no longer about circumcision and Sabbath and all these rules and laws. You don't want them in here because they're not assimilating to your morals and your ideas, but the fact is they already belong to you because they believe Jesus is Lord. They belong to you whether you like it or not. They belong to you. This was, like anyone can be a part of the family of God. Anyone that walks in and claims Jesus is Lord. I'm a follower of Christ. They are your brother and sister. And you must look at them as so and begin to walk with them as you care about their spiritual journey. This is not... This is not a message for outsiders. This is a message for the people that are there that see themselves as the gatekeepers. And there is one thing and one thing alone that matters. Jesus is Lord. All these other things, you can try to separate yourself if you want, but God is not going to see that. God is not going to affirm that. God is not going to see it like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good reason to separate yourself from the, the random political views. No. That is actually not what does it. It's, it's, it's the lordship of Jesus in your life, seeing Jesus as our king. I mean, this was huge news in the ancient world. This was God taking down walls between people in a way that had never existed before. Never in human history could a people be united by an idea. And now suddenly they could. It wasn't about birth and it wasn't about assimilation. And how often now Even though we're 2,000 years past this, how often do we still today build these walls? We separate Christians by political party, by nationality. Do you realize that during World War II, Catholic school children in Germany were praying over the Nazi army that they would be able to kill their enemies. At the same time, Protestant school children in America and Catholic school children in America were praying for our army that they would be able to kill their enemies. And the big problem is we don't actually ponder what our prayers actually should mean. We don't take these thoughts, let's pray for our troops, we don't take these thoughts to their rightful conclusion that like, let's pray for our troops. Wait a minute. We also have brothers and sisters over there. This is a problem. Um, A generous view of God can literally stop wars if we would ponder lived theology. If you really are a follower of Jesus, you are a brother and sister to every other follower of Jesus. You have brothers and sisters in Christ crossing the Mexican desert right now. You have brothers and sisters in Christ hiding in North Korea right now. You have brothers and sisters in Christ probably fighting on the wrong side in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and all these other places. You have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the, everywhere that, that, that your nation, that your status nation would declare they're our enemy, that's where the Christian should respond. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. That's my brother and sister over there. And if we actually ponder the salvation that Jesus is offering, and we would actually do the work that we should do with it, it should change how we interact with everything and everyone. Our theology should do a lot more work than it does. And it simply does not because we refuse to ponder it 
to levels that make us uncomfortable with what we've grown very accustomed to. This idea can still be revolutionary today if it's pondered deeply. And so perhaps you can see why when you get to Acts 17 now, and it says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women, but other Jews were jealous. How dare you? Do you have any idea how long we've been on this journey? Our, like, what about if your theological denomination goes back 500 years? What if it goes back 1,000 years, 2,000 years? How dare you? They belong to you. And whether you like it or not, you're going to have to reckon with that someday. If not this side of eternity, then on the other side. There will probably be some awkward conversations. Our theology should do a lot more work than it actually does in our lives. Anyone who's expecting God to favor themselves and their people over others will not like who they find Jesus to actually be. They will not like it when they actually sit and share that meal with Jesus. They're going to have to shut their mouths and listen very intently and think very deeply for a long time about a lot of moments in their life. You personally are not the end goal of your salvation even. This is how we tend to talk about salvation. Like, your goal is to get saved. That is not the end goal of salvation. I do want you to understand and receive fully the salvation that Jesus is offering. And part of that is to understand that it does not end with you. It was always about your transformation for the salvation of others, of the entire world. When we make our salvation about ourselves, when we, our personal Lord and Savior, no, 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 no. It's very communal. We have a very communal Lord and Savior. He's the God of a people, an ever-expanding, growing people. And when we make our salvation about ourselves, we oftentimes become jealous people, and we become the gatekeepers, and we only let people in who are like us. And so what do we do with all this? With all of Paul's theology that that he has weaved throughout Romans and Galatians. Like, what do we do with all this? Well, here's some thoughts that I had this week about it. I think, I think we have a lot to learn from the faithful people around us who have survived so much yet remained faithful. I don't, I don't think you understand the strength of some of the people that you worship with. Some of them have been through incredible darkness. And their faith in God has survived, even grown, even gotten stronger. And I think you need to spend some time with those people. You need to listen to their stories. You need to listen to their thoughts about God. Though they may be in the background, though they may be invisible. There are people here who have lost children, people who have lost spouses, people who have lost both, people who have spent their life in... uh, human trafficking, being trafficked, people who go by fake names, literally, because they cannot use their real name anymore, lest their past come back to them and the things that they've been through. And you should see them worship. My goodness. You should see the freedom that they express and the hope that they have 
that it seems like those who have not been through anything completely lack. Um, there are people in our church who have been so much homelessness, impoverished, oppressed, abused, and yet they are faithful. You should learn to follow Jesus from these people. You should listen to their thoughts on God. If you get all your theology from someone who is a celebrity author, if you get all your theology from someone who's been slaying it for decades and whose life is this mountain of success with all these followers on, online, if you get all your theology from them, you're going to inherit a theology that is ineffective at helping you understand the faithfulness of God through difficult times. And in fact, when things get difficult, they will jettison that faith like an escape pod from a ship. Like, they will... When things get difficult, their faith will not survive. What you need to do is learn to spend time at the leathery and scarred and weathered feet of the saints, the faithful remnant who's, who's weathered the storm. But we spend so much of our time sitting at the Yeezys of the celebrity pastors. We don't need to do this. There are people in this room that can pastor you much better than any theologian you've ever read simply because of what God has led them through. This is why house churches are so important. This is why gathering with other people and praying together and reading the text together is important. Reading the Bible by yourself is second best. Reading the Bible with other people is best. This is how you should live. Let them lead too. Don't enter into a, <clears throat> don't enter into sort of a, a discipleship, a house church, anything like that, thinking, what do I have to offer all these people? No, 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 no. Let others lead more often than you do. Let them show you the passages that mean the most to them that carried them forward. Let them teach you what Jesus has done for them. Read the text with your black brothers and sisters whose faith tradition literally survived slavery. And I always have to remind you, when I point out that African-American faith survived slavery, a lot of my white brothers and sisters' faith never survived progressive Christian podcasts. Like, you need to listen to other people. Read with women who can't point out all of the ways that Jesus elevates them while the religious leaders oppress them. Read the text with women. Listen to what they have to tell you. Read the text with immigrants to whom God has given them a belonging in a worldwide church, though in this world they feel like they belong nowhere. That the church is their people. Um, theology is not a value menu. It is not your number one or number two or number three or number four, and these are all the sides that come with those. Like, it's okay to sit with another tradition and accept parts of it and accept pieces, but you must listen to all of it and at least understand what you're receiving. Don't be separatists from other Christians. I know the fact that you go to Watermark, there are other Christians that will not gather with you. I'm very aware of that. I'm not reformed, and this is a big reform, like we're in the South. They are your brothers and sisters. Speak about them with the utmost respect, pray for them, serve with them. Um, listen to each other. If you want to ruin a church community, run around trying to decide who's in and who's out and manage the faith journey of everyone else. That's how you ruin a church community, whether it's you or your spiritual leaders that are doing it. That is how you destroy community. Listen to each other. If you want a church that is good, that is tov, if you will, um, sit with other people and receive without pushing back. Be a safe person to speak to. 
Let others talk to you. Don't always shut them down. They're working through things on their own. Work through it with them. Some, like Israel, may not come along. In the cycles of religion, in the cycles of our spiritual journey, collectively as a people, as a church, not everyone will come along. That's okay. God is not interested in leading people where they don't want to go. He leaves them there, lets them, lets them sit and stew until they call out for him and say, are you ready now? Let's go. And then it's as if they were never separate. God is faithful. God is faithful with you. God is faithful with other, per- other people. There was a lot of times in my life, in my younger, very conservative, fundamentalist upbringing, where I was very worried about people's souls. I was very, very worried about them. It would keep me up at night. But through studying the faithfulness of God, the story of God's people, this is what theology has done for me. I no longer worry about people. I, I trust God with them. It's, at, it's 100% out of my control. Um, I, don't worry, I don't worry so much about that. I worry about their faith. Uh, I pray for their faith journey, but I don't worry about their faith journey. God has them. God is present with them. What I worry about is the amount of love that they are receiving from God's people. That's what I worry about. How are people responding to the questions that they're asking? Are they being generous and gracious? Are they being humble? Are they walking with them or are they abandoning them? That is what I worry about. That's how you push people out. I worry about whether or not people have someone remaining with them as a faithful presence of Christ. And so my, my hope for you is that you will learn through our gatherings, through your house churches, through worship, through reading, through study, to be the presence of Christ for other people, not the presence of the Pharisees for them. Be the loving embrace, not the judge. Be the listening ear, not the condemning finger. Be the words that give life and encouragement, not the words that shame and that ostracize. Be the faithful presence of God. The reason we talk about the faithfulness of Christ is because God has formed us into the body of Christ, and so we now must be faithful. Everything we say about Jesus, we should also say about the church. We lead. We reign with Christ. We also pour ourselves out and allow ourselves to be broken with Christ. And so we are also faithful. We're not provoked to jealousy. We're provoked to love and grace and peace. And so let's pray. Would you stand with me and pray? And then we're going to do the Lord's Prayer and be on our way. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would guide us into the future that you are creating. I pray that you would help us to be your image here, the Imago Dei, the, the presence. When people look at us, may they see you. When they interact with us, may they feel like they have interacted with you. That is our goal, to be Christ-like. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. So let us uh, do the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Let's do it. Nice and loud, come on. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have the greatest week of your life. Love you all. We're heading towards the end soon. We'll all be back together. I'm sure a couple of months. We'll see. God bless you.